Welcome to the third edition of the Calling All Stations podcast with me, Christian Wolmer. We'll be looking at the very mixed events of the past year and hoping to give some insights into what's likely to happen in 2023. And I just want to thank the many, many listeners uh, to this podcast and the very supportive feedback we've been having about it. It's clear that people do want to hear about what's going on in the transport world. And I hope that over the next year, Calling All Stations will provide exactly that service. So thank you very much for listening. And I'm joined by my co-presenter, Mark Walker of Cogitamus, who has his ear to the ground. Hello, Christian, and Happy New Year. A pleasure, and the same to you. I hope you had a, a, a lovely festive break, and I was wondering whether on this occasion you took to your car at all. Uh, well, uh, yes, as you know, there wasn't much public transport. My bike was still working uh, perfectly well, um, and I do possess a car. It sits out there. It's a 2003 uh, Skoda, and it sits out there most of the year to such an extent that occasionally it has mushrooms growing inside it. I haven't tried eating them, but uh, they are quite large mushrooms um, and quite a lot of mould. But I did dust off the mould for about uh, a journey of about uh, three miles there and three miles back to my ex-wife for Christmas Day. But otherwise... Uh, I'm afraid, no, I haven't been uh, sampling the roads um, and I haven't been on a train. So I've barely done any transport at all, apart from a few bike rides around London. Well, I think that the shortage of trains, for, for reasons that we know about and we'll discuss shortly, may have caused more people than usual to have to use their cars over the festive period. But I was struck by a uh, an article that appeared over the the Christmas period, um, talking about the scepticism of motorists towards the Smart Motorways initiative in England. And it now, appears... well, oddly, oh, now, oddly enough, and this might sound uh, rather strange, but I always thought this was quite a good idea because it made use of hard shoulders. And, you know, in this day and age, cars really don't break down that much. I mean, they are incredibly more reliable. I do remember, you know, when I, I was at university in the 1960s or late, some early 70s, uh, driving up what was then quite the new, almost new M1 and seeing, you know, quite a lot of steaming cars, uh, punchers, uh, you know, people standing there with their bonnets open on the hard shoulders. And of course, nowadays that doesn't really happen so much. Uh, so when this, they first thought of this idea, I thought, well, it's not a bad idea. It increases capacity on the roads without much environmental damage, without any extra land take. Um, and uh, it seems kind of, you know, a, a winning idea. The problem one, of course, was in implementation. Now, this only could work if the technology was really up to standard and you could ensure that if somebody broke down, you could immediately close the lane, you could divert people around the broken down car, you could make sure there were enough laybys, you know, every kind of quarter of a mile or something where people could kind of go uh, uh, and get off the, the, the main motorway and so on. 
And of course, they messed this up terribly and they didn't create enough laybys. They didn't uh, have the right technology. The people monitoring it were not quick enough to respond and so on. And there have been deaths as a result. I know that uh, Tom Harris, who I knew as a transport minister uh, back in the days of uh, the Blair and Brown governments, uh, was uh, it, it helped introduce these smart uh, motorways uh, and at the time was supportive of them and now has uh, decided that they were a bad idea, which he, he regrets kind of supporting because of uh, the casualties that have resulted from this. So as often is the case, it's not the idea that's bad. I think it's the implementation that's been a problem. And I think there's a theme emerging from our conversations, isn't there, around road traffic and the the constant promises that are made by technology, which often seem to fail to materialise. Uh, indeed. I mean, as, as you know, I've written a lot about driverless cars uh, and, and all the, the, the kind of uh, uh, hype around that, which has uh, not materialised. And there's been more recent news about that, in fact, that... Uh, there's been more, yet more articles uh, uh, expressing scepticism about uh, whether this uh, will uh, ever happen. And I think it's part of, I think, what might be a running theme in this podcast, which is, you know, technology is not the solution. Uh, politics and uh, uh, kind of small-scale measures uh, are often the solution to uh, existing problems and, don't, and not to think that there is some kind of silver bullet of technology that's uh, going to cure things. Of course, many people choose the opportunity of the festive break to get away from it all and uh, take to the skies. But that's been a bit problematic too, hasn't it, in relation to the disputes in the border force? Uh, yes, although, <laughs> funnily enough, it hasn't, it didn't produce the kind of queues at airports uh, that were expected. Uh, and I, that's quite uh, funny, really, that um, uh, there was lots of uh, TV footage on the news the next day showing that the passengers going smoothly through uh, the departure gates and uh, I think that's because uh, the the people who were staffing the border force posts were military, and basically they just seemed to give people a salute and let them go, and they weren't doing the checks. So there were many fewer arrests and or or people being held uh, by the border uh, agencies, um, and uh, it all passed off smoothly. Of course, there were actually Mark pictures from uh, some, I think, uh, pro-Europe person, but uh, pictures of, uh, I think it was Vienna Airport, where uh, the British people were being held in massive queues to get through the uh, airport control, um, and those with EU passports were just uh, sailing through. But maybe remain and leave is a discussion for another day. Now, I saw it on the 1st of January, there was uh, a bit of a, a sort of social media celebration of the centenary of the London and Northeastern Railway, or at least the centenary of the name of the company. But you're a great railway historian, Christian. Presumably that was the centenary of all the 
group railway companies being established in Great Britain, wasn't it? That's right. There was uh, almost 200 private railway companies before uh, the First World War. And uh, inevitably, because of the importance of the railways uh, during uh, the war, they were essentially nationalised and brought uh, under the control of the government so that, for example, all the wagons were pulled, all the carriages were pulled, uh, the engines were pulled so that the government could make decisions about uh, where trains should go and so on. Um, And uh, after the First World War, there was some discussion about what the future of the railway should be. And there was a discussion about whether they should be nationalised. In fact, oddly enough, Winston Churchill was quite supportive of the idea of uh, nationalising the railways. Uh, But eventually a a kind of uh, compromise solution was devised whereby uh, instead of having the couple of hundred kind of railway companies and their subsidiaries and so on operate the railways, they were uh, formed into four. So actually the, the coverage about the London North Eastern Railway was a, a bit of a con actually because the, the, the other three railways were kind of created then. Of course, the Great Western really existed before in much the same form. So in a way, that's the, the oldest kind of railway company and it's still... It's almost still the Great West, although it's just a franchise now. Um, And then Southern Railway, which was probably the most successful of the four companies because it spent a lot of money on uh, electrification in the interwar period. And that was really transformational in terms of the number of people using it and so on. And then the rather forgotten about LMS, London, Midland and and, uh, Scotland, uh, which, of course, ran along uh, the West Coast uh, main line. Um, and, you know, that was a fairly good solution to the problem of what to do about the railways now that they were facing competition from uh, the motor car. But uh, inevitably, uh, the legislation was uh, never kind of adapted sufficiently to be favourable to the railways. So, you know, the, the interwar period was a time when uh, the cars and the motor uh, trade and the motor vehicles generally had it pretty easy uh, compared with the railways who had lots of social obligations, such as the need to carry everything that they were offered, which ranged from you know circuses to fleas, I think. And uh, they were treated rather unfairly. And so by the end of the interwar period, they were in pretty dire state straits and not really able to pay many dividends. And that set up uh, the post-war uh, nationalisation in uh, 1948, which, of course, is covered in my book, British Rail, A New History, which uh, uh, sold rather well at Christmas, if I may plug that. I'm, I'm sure you're perfectly entitled to plug your own book on your <laughs> on your own podcast, Christian. And I suppose one of the other significant features of those group companies was that they were what's known as vertically integrated businesses, weren't they? So they had the trains and the track uh, organised into the same company. Absolutely. And uh, I've always been a great advocate of that's the way to run a railway. And one of the disasters of the way that the railways were privatised in the mid-1990s in this country uh, was uh, uh, that they separated out the operations from the infrastructure, which is creating kind of false businesses. It is very notable, Mark, that despite 
the European legislation, which is supposed to kind of separate out the two, at least uh, on accounting terms. Northern Ireland, of course, retained a uh, integrated railway, uh, which has been boosted with quite a lot of investment and boosted by great increases in numbers. And uh, so it's a little bit of corner of uh, the UK where uh, the sensible notion of having integrated railways uh, has survived. And now, of course, the big issue is in 2023, are we going to get uh, this great British railways that we have uh, been promised? Will it be a sort of fully integrated railway or will it become something that is just sort of franchises by another name? And that's something that uh, I suspect we'll be looking at a lot over the next uh, uh, 12 months. We await to find out whether there's going to be uh, legislation uh, and what shape that legislation will be. Uh, to be honest, the Department for Transport is quite openly dithering about this, and uh, which I think is pretty bad uh, for the industry, which, uh, as I think we're going to talk about now, has its problems. Something I was delighted to see over the New Year period was the launch of the Varimis Rail dedicated rail uh, parcels service between Scotland and the West Midlands, which finally launched. Uh, I think it's, would you agree, it's great to see the rail, a railway company trying to reclaim part of the freight market, which perhaps has been lost uh, to far too great an extent in recent years. Oh, absolutely. I mean, this is one of the daft things about uh, the, the modern railway, isn't it? That, uh, you know, it's scrapped so much of uh, its freight and additional services, uh, both running up to privatisation and after privatisation. And uh, there, there are so many potential uses uh, for the railways above and beyond just uh, carrying passengers and bits of freight around. Uh, I mean, in France, for example, I mean, they have postal trains on the high-speed lines. The TGV has, has you know, dedicated yellow uh, TGVs which uh, run up and down the, uh, the lines uh, mostly at night. Um, and, of course, we had this wonderful uh, Red Star service that, uh, you know, I, I remember when I was a van driver for in my student days, I used to deliver to uh, Red Star offices. And the idea was that you, you took a parcel to uh, a uh, main line or a main station office. And it only operated out of the kind of bigger stations. Um, and you know, that parcel will be taken by train to uh, uh, virtually all around the country. I think you have personal experience of this, Mark. Indeed, I started my working life working for uh, for Red Star Parcels. So I was a, uh, I've always been a great advocate for the railway's ability to move those kind of products around. And it, it was sad that it was uh, a victim, I think, of fragmentation of the industry. It just wasn't. Nobody was really interested in in keeping it going as a rail-born service once the franchises were set up. Didn't you once get asked to take a, a rather 
unusual load on the Red Star, I seem to remember. Well, we did. Uh, you talked earlier about the railways as, as common carriers. And in my early railway career, we were just at the, at the tail end of that kind of regime where there were uh, the kind of unusual cargoes that you could be asked to, to consign. The kind of traffic that we could uh, carry varied enormously. So sometimes I would arrive in the parcel office in the morning uh, to the overwhelming uh, sound of, of tweeting chicks or ducklings that had arrived in special boxes overnight to be uh, collected uh, early in the morning by the farmers. Um, and at the other e extreme, uh, there was still a, a, an arrangement where we could be asked to convey corpses by passenger train. Hopefully um, in coffins. Uh, yes, yes, indeed. But uh, I only ever received one inquiry. Uh, and, and I think the policy that had been adopted, which I think we're familiar with in the railways in this country, were, was that... Uh, the railway didn't really want that traffic, and so they made it prohibitively expensive, and so the uh, the inquiry was not taken forward. But yes, I, I do think that the passengers travelling in a, a, a normal train would be slightly shocked to know that in the goods van there was uh, a, a, some dead bodies and coffins. I think I can understand uh, uh, a British Rail's reluctance, but you raise an interesting point there, of course, which is a lot of this traffic was squeezed out quite deliberately. Uh, by British Rail and certainly at privatisation, uh, much of this kind of unusual type of traffic uh, was dumped. So it's very good to hear that this new company is now uh, focusing on trying to bring some of it back. Uh, there have been, over the time I've covered the railways, there have been other similar initiatives which have founded on the basic complexity of dealing with uh, the privatised railway and all the different parts of it that you have to uh, actually negotiate with. So uh, I wish Veronis Rail uh, every bit of luck in trying to negotiate through that and uh, establishing a healthy service and profitable. It's impossible to reflect on the current transport scene without commenting on the continuing industrial disputes in Great Britain's railways. What's your take on the current situation, Christian? Well, I'm afraid it's deja vu all over again, isn't it? Uh, where, uh, you know, what I might say now possibly could have been said uh, last month for the month before and so on. In many ways, it hasn't moved. There, there are possible signs that uh, things are moving because uh, support for action has slightly reduced on the union side. I think there was a little bit more emollient uh, noises coming out of the Department for Transport, but I'm not optimistic about this. And I think that the fundamental problem comes down to something that I have said on, on air and written about in Rail Magazine, which is uh, the attempt by uh, and it is the government, it's no good talking about the train companies, it's the government ruling this, the attempt by the government to mix in the idea of improving productivity with the pay rise. And, you know, it's clear that, and, and the public supports this, it's clear that 
you know, the workers deserve a pay rise. You know, with inflation at 10, 12%, and they're not having received a pay rise for up to three years, it, it's ludicrous to try to tie this in to some kind of vague reforms that whose nature we're not really clear about. I mean, there's some talk about, you know, driver-only operation, but as I'm sure you know, you know, you can only introduce that on trains that are properly equipped. And in any case, you need guards uh, on many trains for revenue protection and so on. And I mean, it's just completely ludicrous to, to for them to tie that in. Yes, there's some changes that could be done the way that track workers work and so on. But that doesn't affect everybody in the industry. It only affects some particular groups of workers. So what the government ought to be doing is negotiating over that with those specific groups of workers, but uh, going ahead with a pay rise that is clearly necessary and clearly, as I've stressed, uh, the public is supportive. And, you know, what's amazing, Mark, is that, you know, we've had kind of now, you know, six months of these uh, occasional strikes, probably a, a dozen or more days uh, of of full strikes by RMT, which has reduced the railway to about 20%. And yet, you know, when you hear the Vox Pops, uh, when you kind of talk to people in the streets, um, they're still supportive of what the workers are doing. So the Tory strategy of saying, well, let's just kind of, uh, you know, hanker down and, and uh, you know, we'll see these guys off and, and it all fall apart is just not working. So uh, let's hope that uh, in the forthcoming year, uh, the, the, the government will see some sense. I mean, it, it's, it's just this insistence of, of, of combining these two very different kind of aspects of industrial relations that is really ensuring there is no progress at all. So, you know, looking forward to 2023, it's very difficult to go beyond uh, a sorting out the strike because until that happens, all the other things that need to happen in the railways, which is really you know post-COVID recovery, fares reform, uh, sorting out uh, new types of timetable to uh, match the the usage of the railway now, which is kind of less commuting but very high use of off-peak uh, railway uh, travel. All these things that are kind of you know, part of the long-term future of the railway can't really move forward until uh, this uh, dispute is sorted out. And, and, you know, that's to the detriment of uh, rail users. And I think is, you know, not reflecting well on the government either. You only have to look at the polls to think that, you know, people are not very kind of happy with, with the way this is going. So what else do you think we might see happen in 2023, Christian, across the whole panorama of transport? Well, I think getting back to normal is still kind of uh, uh, the, uh, you know, what transport companies certainly will be will be hoping, uh, which is, you know, in terms of uh, rail use kind of increasing steadily uh, once this dispute is over in the way that it uh, has increased uh, since COVID times. As I suggest, I don't think it'll ever reach kind of hundred percent of commuting, but it might well use hundred percent of usage, but with a with a different pattern. Um, I, I think in terms of air transport, 
uh, again, it's a, a matter of uh, trying to get back to uh, what was happening before. I think people are now much readier to uh, take planes. They're, they're less worried about uh, catching COVID, even though it must be said that you know there is quite a lot of COVID still about. Um, but they are uh, prepared to take planes. So I think aviation will, you know, heads slowly back up to, to uh, pre-COVID uh, numbers. Um, and uh, in terms of uh, continental travel and uh, holidays and things, I think, you know, that this will be the first totally uh, normal year. So we're going to get uh, situations with, uh, you know, airports being crowded at holiday times and, and all that kind of stuff. And, and the roads, again, probably back to 100%, if not 110, 120%. And, and again, kind of, uh, you know, very, very crowded uh, roads during the holiday period. So um, let's hope that uh, this actually does mark a, a year of uh, normality. It would be nice to just have a boring year where nothing much changes apart from steady growth. Here's Christian's thought from the Departure Lounge for this week. Well, uh, Mark, I think there's a key thing here, which is that you know the railways have uh, suffered from not only the COVID thing and then, of course, from... Uh, uh, industrial relations dispute and some cutbacks uh, from government, which has reduced the timetable. And I think it's a very important message for people, which is don't give up on the railways, you know, and very much important to, as well to uh, managers who are running it, you know, don't give up on them. Don't think that the railways are marginal. They are still an essential part of our transport infrastructure. Many people rely on them. There are no alternatives, really, for some journeys. If you don't have a car, there's no proper coach services, really, across the country anymore. So don't give up on the railways. Calling All Stations with Christian Walmart is a Cogitamus Limited production. If you've enjoyed listening to our podcast, please consider giving us a five-star rating with whichever podcasting platform you use.